Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello, my name is Dr Aoife Kylie. I'm a research officer from Alzheimer's Society, and I'm pleased to be hosting this podcast recording for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. This week, we will be discussing gender equality in research. I'd like to welcome our panel of experts, Dr. Natalie Marchant, who is an Alzheimer's Society funded senior fellow based at UCL. Her research focuses on whether repetitive negative thinking increases cognitive debt and so the risk of dementia. Dr. Frances Wiseman. Frances is a senior research fellow based at UCL. She holds an Alzheimer's Society grant which funds a PhD student and is investigating Alzheimer's disease and Down syndrome and Dr Penny Rappaport, a clinical psychologist and winner of the Alzheimer's Society Rising Star Award. Her work involves creating real-world solutions to manage agitation and to improve quality of life in people living with dementia. So let's get into it. For my first question, I'd like to ask, we know that dementia research is quite typical of both biomedical and care research fields in that it is dominated by women but the top jobs are largely held by men. Why do you think this is? And do you think that the field would be different if there was more of a balance? Francis. I think that's such an interesting question. I think it's really hard to say or pinpoint one particular factor that's influencing that difference. And partly it's historic that senior people are older and have been uh, affected by maternity leave policies and stuff from the past. So we can't really predict the future. But I also think unconscious bias and other Mm. things that are preventing women from putting themselves forward for kind of challenging or ambitious leadership roles are also a factor. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think it's um, it seems to be the case in many professions too, is that the top jobs are held by men mm. and probably for the very reasons that you, you just mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think I would agree as well. And I think it is, it feels like it's changing or at least it's being kind of thought about and talked about much more openly, but I do still see that as being the case um, within research more broadly I think Um, and I think that partly that's also just to do with maybe some of the other things that are going on at a kind of yeah unconscious level within departments Mm. that perpetuate the kind of same power relations really I suppose I also think at an individual level I think quite a lot of it is people not putting themselves well in my experience not putting themselves forward when they would be competent Mm -hmm. uh, but they they don't put that application in they don't have that conversation because they're kind of fearful or worried about that that consequence because that's seen as not what they should do Mm -hmm. because they're a woman and do you see that as a sort of internalized unconscious bias Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I think it's not just about other people as well. That's my personal viewpoint. I think often people feel a little bit reluctant to put their themselves forward as a woman. Yeah. Whereas I think that men, don't, in my experience, don't have that same feeling of reluctance yeah. to promote that self-promotion yeah. because it's seen in society as a bit negative to stand up and say, I'm brilliant yeah. when you're female. Yeah. Whereas for a man, it's seen as 
a good thing to do. Something that's promoted and supported. Yeah. And from personal experience, I, I feel, yeah, I, I go through that too. Mm. I don't really want to stand up and say, you know, pick me or I can mm. do this. I feel like if I had a buddy with me almost who, who I could kind of hold hands with and say, okay, we'll do it together, mm. then that would probably um, be more, more likely to, to go for mm. promotion and do something like that. And I wonder whether that's also linked with the men being sort of generally in the higher positions is that uh, it is sort of a, a singular track or, you know, mm. these are outcomes that are measurable that they have to fulfill, whereas women may tend to be more collaborative and have more kind of reaching across mm. kind of um, tendencies that maybe... Um, wouldn't put themselves uh, in more position to be promoted. Yeah. Natalie, I'm glad you mentioned about enjoying the idea of kind of like buddying up with somebody to um, take on a new challenge, because that reminded me of the Athena Swan um, programme. And for anyone who's not familiar, Athena Swan was a is a charter that was drawn up to encourage and recognise commitment to combating the underrepresentation of women in science. Um, so it involves initiatives such as the mentoring programme, there's networking events um, and different initiatives to kind of support women in research. Um, when I was a researcher in my previous life before I was with Alzheimer's Society, I was um, mentored in the mentoring programme and I found it really useful. Um, I don't know if any of you have been involved in the mentoring programme as mentors or mentees. Um, yeah, I've been mentored um, and I found it amazingly useful. It resulted in me getting promoted, which I never would Fantastic. have ever happened before. Uh, first of all, I didn't understand there really was a way to be promoted before someone pointed out to me, he was my mentor, that yes, that not only uh, that there was, but also I probably would be if I applied, which actually was quite important to me, that kind of fear factor that, you know, maybe I shouldn't put myself forward because I didn't really deserve it. Mm. So that was really important to me and something I've I feel really passionately about helping other people with as well. I had a mentor when I was at um, King's College London, not through the Athena Swan programme, but I think it was a, a KCL um, oh, programme. Yeah. And it also helped me tremendously. She was not in, um, she was in a totally different research area, but she was a professor and had experience of kind of um, uh, straddling uh, different countries and and working with different within different environments, and she really helped um, give me a lot of confidence uh, in becoming an independent researcher, mm. um, which is not something I had before. And sometimes it's quite nice to have somebody outside of your field and outside of the troubles of your day to day research life yeah. who can give you that kind of perspective Absolutely. on issues or you yep, know. Yep things like promotions and so on. Yeah, that was very much what she did, actually. She sort of zoomed out mm. on um, sort of my, my day-to-day minutiae stuff and then helped me see the bigger picture and then the direction in which um, I wanted to move, um, which was, yeah, it was great. Yeah, I feel like um, mentoring is a, is a great way for women to support women in a way of kind of all boats rising in the tide. Um, but I know I have come across criticism that, you know, male researchers that I know have said to me that they'd love a mentor. And I think in order for real gender equality, like men have to be included and especially young researchers that, you know, to get those opportunities as well. I don't know what you guys think about that. It's interesting because I think in our department, 
the mentoring scheme is is open to everyone and i think every all yeah. kind of um early career researchers have the opportunity for mentoring and i and, and my experience has actually been that i mean the people i've i've i have been allocated to mentor and, and kind of met with them and and it was really useful conversation but actually i think that the the mentoring that i've kind of valued is it's been more informal really and it's through mm. a network and i think often has been related to being a woman at a particular point in my career and finding people who maybe are having similar challenges and dilemmas within the the context that i work and and so i think we've kind of established almost like informal networks and kind of people that we'd have lunch with where we can just talk through some of these things um because i think that there is a attendance yeah i think it was just you know finding the people that you can kind of connect with on these conversations and also that you feel comfortable talking about certain things with because it's not it doesn't always feel that kind of safe or mm, yeah. okay yeah so yeah. peer support also yeah. in addition to mentoring yeah yeah i'd kind of like to add as well i think that if you kind of start taking uh, responsibility for supervising other people in terms of an academic setting, you really do need to think about their career development, yeah. whether a man mm. or a woman, and have conversations with them. I think that's kind of become an on the PI mm. and with my students that that's very, very important that we all yeah. learn to do that, you know, man, woman. So, yeah, I think that's an excellent point because obviously a lot of researchers become PIs without management training and, mm. you know, it's short-term focused on deadlines mm. grant applications that sometimes I can imagine it's very easy to just want to get the results out of that person and not really care where their career goes after that but yeah I mean it is about improving our whole field and improving the whole environment and culture that we're working in so I think that's an excellent point yeah but I do think that some of those things are I mean it goes back to that first question about kind of why is it that the field is dominated by men at the top and I think it is partly because historically those qualities or ways of being um, working with other people valuing the importance of developing colleagues you know those won't weren't necessarily um, prioritized or privileged and I think I think I don't know if it was before or after talking about transparency and things being really clear and processes being followed. I think that's really changed. I think in the past it wasn't like that. And that's why, you know, there was a lot more of a kind of, you know, people kind of, it was about who you knew and kind of how you connected with yeah. those people. But now I think that there is starting to be much more of a sense that, you know, actually how you supervise other people and how you manage people as well as projects is really important. And, you know, that those qualities we should be valuing them rather than, you know, them just being sort of things that happen along the way. I don't know if that's... Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so another issue that I wanted to discuss with you all is about the effect of um, taking maternity and paternity leave on careers and gender equality and... At Alzheimer's Society, we're really proud to support all our grant holders who need to take any form of leave, um, such as parental or sick leave. We particularly stand out in the research field as we're one of the very few funding organisations to offer maternity leave and pay 
to our PhD students. Um, anyone looking for more information about this can find it on our For Researchers section of our website, alzheimers.org.uk. And my question to the panellists who've all taken maternity leave at different parts of their career is whether you anticipated a negative reaction to you taking maternity leave and what has the reality been for you, you know, was your institute flexible? Um, are meetings restricted to core working hours and so on? Natalie? Yeah, happy to talk about that. Um, so I, um, I've i just come back from taking uh, maternity leave. Um, I came back a few uh, few months ago uh, with um, after having my, my first child, um, my only child. Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, I was very nervous about uh, sharing the fact that I was pregnant um, with people, um, with with colleagues, um, with my funder, um, with, with everybody. Um, but in in fact, once I started sharing that information, um, there was absolutely no negative uh, response from anybody. Um, and I have to say uh, that talking with the Alzheimer's Society um, was really brilliant. Um, Great, that, yeah, <laughs> but, but really, actually, um, because I was, uh, I am funded uh, through a fellowship, and uh, I spoke with with uh, the Alzheimer's Society, and who were very flexible um, with uh, what I would do with that fellowship, whether I could keep it open so that I could have a research assistant continue on while I was uh, on maternity leave, and um, that was it was actually a really enjoyable experience, and the transition to coming back to work um, was fine. Uh, and also within my division, actually, people were very supportive of me. Um, and uh, even though I did work during my maternity leave, um, I, th I think I can say it was by choice. Um, nobody, nobody made me, but in order to, to keep other projects kind of going on, I think uh, it was necessary for me to, to keep a, a toe into the research, mm. um, and I think that actually benefited me coming back. That it wasn't such a difficult transition. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, so I've taken two maternity leaves because I've got two kids, and the first time I was like you before, I was utterly terrified. Mm -hmm. Telling my PI, absolutely scared. Telling my head of department, really, really worried. And actually, it was a, it was a difficult. Uh, I found coming back from maternity leave really difficult. I only mm. took five months off the first time. Um, and that was a really hard balance mm. when I was coming back to do full-time lab work yeah. with a five, well, it was five and a half month baby at the time. Um, and it was long days and I was yeah. trying to maintain breastfeeding and it was a very difficult period. Second time around, the whole thing was a total breeze when I took um, just shy of 12 months off. Yeah. Um, so I kind of had slightly different experience to you mm. with from the first time. Um, and I didn't have that many negative comments from people, I have to say, but there were a few. Mm. Nothing, no one senior, I have to say. And I don't think they would have, even if they'd been thinking it, they wouldn't have said it. Um, but certainly at kind of a more junior level uh, about, you know, oh, you're going to be a part-timer now, that kind of classic <laughs> announcement. Um, but actually, when I proved to everyone that I was coming back to do work um, and it was fine the second time I was completely felt so confident about going in and saying oh I'm having another baby I've done it before I can handle this mm. so um, that was my personal experience of the of the two different breaks. Mm. 
I do. I mean, I really struggle with this because I do like. I, I mean, like this idea that you know doing work on maternity leave and it's through your own choice <laughs> and you know what that actually means yeah. and who's making those choices mm. and because I think and, and like what you were just saying Francis that like you know if people are making comments about being a part-timer and it's like almost like you you know actually what you can reassure people with is that you you know when you come back you'll be doing just as much mm. and probably over and above actually because you need to prove, prove yourself yourself and that's what I see happening um within our department when people come back from maternity it's almost like it's absolutely fine and no one says anything and it's all great but I think there's something about the kind of pressures that people put themselves under in in order to do it which I don't think is as is just I mean I don't want to talk for you Natalie I mean <laughs> but it is you know that the, even having to work when you're on maternity leave in other contexts that's just not mm. how it's done and I think I was you know I, I have taken maternity leave on two occasions but I was mainly working in a clinical job in the NHS and I think it's the expectation there would just the thought that people would do work when they're on maternity leave mm. is just not it's just not how it is and I think you know when you there's this idea that if you're managing your own projects and you know in research it's like you have to keep it going because but it's but that yeah, they so, can be questioned though those. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but for for me, it was, uh, yeah, I I do no, I get it. Yeah. Um, and so so for my my fellowship, that that was fine because yeah. that was mine. And so when I went on maternity leave, that could sort of pause. Yeah. But there's another project that I'm involved with that's not going to stop for me. That mm. kept going. And so you know, in that situation, yeah. I, I felt um, yeah, I had to keep going then too. Yeah. yeah. And I think also, because at the time, in my second time, I was supervising PhD students oh, and I obviously yeah. made, yeah. you know, loads of arrangements for those, for those people, but I felt personally responsible. Yeah, yeah. And I also, yeah. to be honest, I wanted to know what was going on. Yeah, I re- I re- I'm not going to lie to you, I didn't want to stop second time around. And we used to have group meeting. My baby came with group meeting. Oh. <laughs> we had group meeting at my house yeah. the first month. Yeah, and it was great. We had a day and it was just what I wanted to do and it wasn't external pressure at all to keep working Mm. it was I genuinely didn't want to let it go and also because I was now used to juggling baby and work it was completely natural for me and actually I had to fight fight quite hard to be allowed to have those kind of esoteric meetings and keep my email access open Mm. because you know by the letter of the the rules in our department, everything should have been shut down and I should have been stopped oh, from wow. working. Yeah, so I had to be quite careful yeah, about so how I organised it to make yeah. sure I wasn't kind of in breach of uh, my, my kit days. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so... Going to the other extreme, so I, Well, they wanted to protect us, right? Oh. So that's where those r- rules are there for these reasons that we didn't want to feel these external pressures. Mm. But obviously, I, I wanted to do these things. Mm, so, yeah. But first time around, I wasn't capable with my first baby of actually working on maternity mm. leave because I was learning quite a lot about <laughs> looking after a child. So. <laughs> it does make it harder, and I do think that sometimes those questions don't get asked actually or it doesn't get talked about and I think within departments it's just you you see these you know people coping really well and just getting on with it and coming back full time and all of those things and I think I often think like for other members of staff like what that's like and if they chose to do things Mm. differently or wanted to you know not have any contact like what that would be like and because we don't see that happening Mm -mm. yeah no absolutely and I think you know 
my experience as well is you don't know what type of baby you're going to get. Yeah, and also right. that massively, in my personal experience, affects how your maternity leave goes because mm. my kids were completely different. Yeah. And so you can't predict that. You can't plan for it. Yeah. You can't, you know. So and my PI was really supportive and actually yeah. kind of realistic <laughs> about telling me, you know, mm. I think that maybe you shouldn't kind of commit to these things now. <laughs> you should wait to see what happens. Mm. So I found that really valuable as well, having that you know that support from someone you know and that direct line management level saying mm. actually please don't commit to this at the moment mm. that's not sensible yeah. in your opinion do maternity and paternal leave policies have an impact on gender equality in research i'm i i think because obviously i i've i've seen kind of the pre paternity leave policy so when i had mm-hmm. my first child there was no parental leave yeah there was two weeks um mm-hmm. that's what you know my husband got, got at the time and that's what we actually did the second time around as well um and um so you know i kind of have the perspective and i know that the second time around lots of my friends were having kids at that kind of age and um lots of uh, my husband's friends and our friends they did the, the dads did take time off but I didn't see the same thing happening in the academic setting I've not actually met any man who's taken more than the two or four weeks depending on kind of the university setting so I don't know if anyone actually knows anyone who's who's done that because yeah. I've I've not seen that happen my husband and I did mm. shared paternal leave, a, a parental leave, but actually he's not an academic. Yeah. Um, but he uh, he stayed home one day a week, so we were together. Mm. And that worked very well mm. for us. But yeah, I, I don't know any male academics who've taken paternal leave for more than the two mm. weeks. Mm. I think there is, yeah, there is someone we work with who has. Okay. And um, and I think he, he speaks very positively about that experience. and. Mm. Um, but it'd be interesting. I don't know whether he would say actually he's had comments made about it or not. I don't know what his mm. like to talk from his experience of that. But I think yeah. I do think more broadly that um, yeah, it 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 has an impact on people's research trajectories and careers, and there's no sort of getting around that really. Mm. <laughs> uh, mm. So my personal viewpoint as well, it isn't just the maternity leave that affects it. Yeah. To be honest, it's the first, particularly the first couple of years um, to do with childcare and exclusion mm. from childcare because of sickness and having to be drop things at the drop of the hat and, you know, come home for a certain time, yeah. not be able to, turn, you know, having to turn down conferences, yeah. attendance or having another childcare nightmare to, to go. So there's more to it than just those six months yeah. in my personal experience about decision making that then happens yeah. I feel like I'm I'm now experiencing that <laughs> myself having been back for a few months had some childcare issues and I you know I used to love working late into the night and that just I just can't do that anymore um, so it's it's really caused quite a big lifestyle shift and working shift so now I'm up very early trying to work early in the morning, which is not something I'd ever conceived of doing before, um, just to try to, you know, make sure the hours are in. I think that that affects all parents. Yeah, yeah that's not exclu- that's not excluding to, to women. women. All parents, I think, or primary caregivers or caregivers yeah. um, experience that kind of needing to rearrange one's life after you've got kids to worry about. 
because I, I know at Alzheimer's Society when we're receiving grant applications when there is um, say the gap in inverted commas in someone's CV where they've taken maternity leave we do take that into account you know we're, we're not going to re- compare them to a man who published five papers during that time you know you have to take everything into account and I think that's more important that people and funding bodies especially bear that in mind look at the whole researcher look at everything they contribute to the department and look at them as a whole person you know who's got a work-life balance which in the end is healthier than somebody who just locks themselves in doing their research all the time and contributes nothing else to the department. Do you, that's really nice to hear that the Alzheimer's <laughs> Society does that, really reassuring. Do you think other funders do that? I think it's something, yeah, that's becoming more considered um, because I think they'd be losing a lot of excellent voices in the field if they weren't bearing that in mind. My experience with all the major funders and all the um, dementia research charities in the UK for certain mm. completely take it. Yeah. Um, into account and actually I think the ERC if I remember correctly they actually it's 18 months per child for the primary caregiver so you want to show that say obviously in terms of how they account for your clock well I'm sorry to have to stop this very interesting conversation there um, but I'd like to thank all the panelists for taking part and I'd like to thank you the listeners to our podcast and to remind you that you can subscribe Subscribe to the podcast through SoundCloud and iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do share, subscribe and rate the podcast. And you can tag us using the hashtag ECR Dementia. If you would like to join one of our panels or to write a blog for the website, please get in touch. Thank you. This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.